Well, we are continuing our way through Revelation, and this morning we are in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. So I invite you to read along in your bulletin or uh, your Bible if you brought it with you. Revelation 7, chapter 1, or uh, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the, seal, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and for the benefit and privilege of having it in our language, and that you have given us the eyes of the Spirit to read it and to understand it. And I pray that we would see this passage with his illumination this morning and that we would be struck to the heart and that we would be comforted. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, perhaps we're getting into a bit of a bad habit beginning our Revelation sermons with five-minute intros, setting us up to move through it. Or perhaps that just comes with the territory. You can decide either way. Please permit, permit me a slightly longer intro as I set us up to move through this passage with what I hope is relative ease. If you've been following along with our series, you know that we find ourselves in the midst of a sequence. Starting in chapter 5, our attention went with John's to this scroll and to the one who was worthy to open this scroll and unfold its contents. And last week, we saw those contents unfolded, or at least six out of seven of the contents. As each seal was broken and the scroll unfolded, and we saw the judgments of God come forward. And at the climax of this sequence, between seals six and seven, we have here what seems to be a pause. Chapter 7 begins after this, and it is not the seventh scroll being opened that follows, but something else. The narrative tension at the moment of climax has been suspended. And interpreters are mixed, as they are on virtually every other chapter of Revelation, as to how this new scene relates to what is around it, specifically to the seals. Is what we have here an interlude between seals six and seven? That is something that happens in history between 
the events of seal six and the events of seal seven? Or is this actually taking us back in time before the seals are opened to show what has been true of God's servants all along? And there are options even beyond those. And that doesn't even factor into the question or into, uh, into question for us the identity of the 144,000. Is this a literal 144,000? Is this ethnic Israel? Or is it more than that? Well, we don't have time to parse through every option before us. But let me show you by way of context how I and several others uh, commentators take this. And then we'll plunge into the vision itself. If you have your Bibles with you, look back with me at six, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. If not, you can just imagine it. John sees in, in, in chapter 6, uh, in this verse, he sees a vision of martyrs around the throne of God crying out, How long until you avenge our blood on the earth? And the answer they are given in verse 11 is to wait a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. Well, what do we see here in our passage? We see a numbering. We see a complete numbering. 12 by 12 by 10 to the third power. And if we keep reading, we run into a multitude from every nation that no one could number. By the end of chapter 7, the number is expanding to one so complete that only God can count it. And so this text is, I am confident, about the complete number of God's servants. But that's not all that it's about. Again, if you have your Bible, look with me at the verse just before our passage Chapter 6, verse 17, ends this way. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can possibly stand in the great day of wrath is the question. And 7, 1 begins, after this I saw. And what does John see? He sees God's angels holding back destructive forces until the sealing or the visible marking of the servants of God is complete. And that marking, as we will see, is what enables them to stand. And so, in context, this vision is doing double duty. It is showing the numbering of the complete servants of God and how it is that that number will stand in the great day of wrath. The servants are numbered and they are sealed to stand. That's what we see here. And so I take these eight verses to be part one of a two-part vision. Part one, our verses, are, is a flashback showing what God has done to prepare his servants to stand in the day of wrath. In part two... 9 through 17, I see a flash forward depicting the full number standing before the throne of God in worship, having come out of the day of wrath under the banner of God's mercy, safe in the kingdom of God. 
And so whether that day of wrath is a historical day in the past, a lowercase d day of wrath, if you will, that has already happened to first century Christians, or whether it is a future day, the great day of wrath, the uppercase d, if you will, which is what I lean toward, I think the import of this text is still clear and still stands either way. The sealed are safe. What is this passage saying? In simple terms, the sealed are safe. The full number of God's servants will stand in whatever trials and tribulations they endure and will come to stand around the throne of God in worship. And so that's where we're heading. And our passage gives us three reasons to be confident that this is the case, that the sealed are safe. Why are the sealed safe? Well, one, God is restraining his judgment. Two, God has marked them for deliverance. And three, God won't send wrath until the number is complete. Why are the sealed safe? Because God is restraining his judgment. Because God has marked his people for deliverance. And because God will not send wrath until the number is complete. Long intro's over. Let's get into the text. Point one, God is restraining his judgment. Look, at, look with me at verse one. The vision of verse one is remarkable. You have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. This is an image of restraint of cosmic restraint. Sometimes when I walk my dog, Wrigley, we happen upon a bunny or an unsuspecting squirrel. And uh, my dog is a setter, and so his natural-born prey drive is activated. And you see his body go into stealth mode. He slowly leans forward, and there's nothing else in the world but him and that bunny. And the only thing keeping him from breaking out into an all-out sprint is what? It's my hand on the leash. My restraint in one sense. I, or in one sense, I hold in my hand the life of that little bunny. What we see in this passage is that God's angels at his command are holding back four winds from wreaking havoc on the earth. Four strong winds that would blow from the four corners of the earth. This is ancient imagery of would-be seismic destruction on the created order were it not for the angels. And this is certainly the dominant image in verse 1, but there is a, a telling detail that I want us to notice that will set us up For the rest of the passage, look at the end of verse 1. It says that the angels are to restrain the winds that they might not blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Why mention the trees? Well, I owe this connection to Peter Lightheart. I admit I had glanced over this. 
There's another place in the Bible where God gives a command not to harm trees. It's in Deuteronomy where God is giving instructions to his people before they head out from the wilderness into the promised land about what to do when they besiege a city to drive out their enemies. And at the end of this list of instructions is this. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down. So the reason for this command is, well, one, the fruit trees are, in a sense, innocent, which is interesting. But secondly, they are sources of nutrition. Trees make a land more hospitable. And so from the detail of this preservation of trees, along with the earth and sea, I think we can rightfully infer that one reason for this restraint is not only to keep judgment at bay, but also to keep earth hospitable. To keep earth hospitable. And for what? Why is God restraining the winds to delay judgment and keep the earth hospitable? Because there's work yet to be done. The growth of the church. God is keeping the earth hospitable so that the church might grow on it for more servants of God to come forth until the number is complete. And so already we actually see here the mercy of God around his judgment. The number needs to be complete. And this brings us to our second point. Point two, God has marked his people for deliverance. Why are the sealed safe? Because God has marked them for deliverance. This we see in verses 2 through 3, where another angel is at work to preserve God's people. This one ascends with the seal of the living God and directs the angels to wait. Not yet. Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees. Until what? Until what? Until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. There is yet work to be done before the world is rolled up. You may be wondering, what is the seal of the living God? Well, it is not like the seals on the scroll, which are wax seals placed over parchment. This seal, we see from verse 7, is some kind of mark that the servants of God receive on their foreheads. And if you've read Ezekiel lately, your mind may be transported back to a certain passage in Ezekiel from where we get this image. Ezekiel 9 is where Ezekiel receives a sobering vision of judgment that will come upon Israel in their exile. And I'm going to read a, a, a long portion of this vision. And it is, it is sobering. It is difficult. 
but I don't think we should spare ourselves from it. And so here it is. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with, riding, with a riding case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So you have seven people, six executioners and one person with riding on his waist, or with a riding case at his waist, ready to do the Lord's bidding. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had, riding, who had the riding case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through, Jer- through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, mark the faithful for whom wickedness is a, is a reason to groan and sigh. And to others, to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one, touch no one on whom is the mark. This is a word of wrath, indicating to us God's judgment against evil, that he will not let it stand. And yet we see that those with the mark escape. And this might rightly call your mind even further back in the Old Testament to the night of Passover which I referenced two weeks ago, of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of Israel, providing shelter and safety for all in that house. And the angel of death passed over those houses, but not the others, because those houses had the mark. So those with the mark escape. And so from Israel's early history through their exile, And to now, in the last times, there is consistent use of this idea of a mark that saves you from coming destruction. Well, what is that mark to us now? In the New Testament, it is called the seal of the Holy Spirit. Here's how Ephesians puts it. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, And believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The seal comes upon those who believe in the gospel. And the seal is none other than the Holy Spirit of God, who is himself our guarantee. And so the mark that we receive is a mark that will not smudge off. It is a fixed, sure mark. 
And so, given these illusions, what we see as we look at this passage is that God has set aside for salvation those who believe in Jesus and thus have the mark of God. Whatever judgment will befall the earth, it will not ultimately harm those who are sealed. And this gives us courage, not only for the day of wrath, but for today. If we have the mark, we are in one sense invincible. I'm reminded of a scene in um, World War Z, and yes, I am referring to a zombie movie, where the main character discovers that the zombies do not attack anyone with a terminal illness. And at one point, he sees these zombies rushing, and this just horde of them. And in the middle of this pack is this man with a limp. And he catalogs that idea, and it occurs to him later as other patterns or other details fall into that pattern, that the zombies do not target weak hosts. Basically, anyone that is soon to die anyway, the zombies seem to pass over. And so what he does is he injects himself with a terminal illness that will kill him much later in life. And he walks out into the hallway full of zombies, and this crowd just runs right past him as if he's invisible to them. He is, for all intents and purposes, invincible. Christians are invincible for the day of wrath. God is acting in history to make his people safe for that day. That's what we're seeing here. Whatever forces are sent out on earth, they cannot extinguish ultimately your life. And so that day will come upon you as deliverance and nothing else. When the Lord says strike, that word will not put fear in your heart. And that day will come at its appointed time. And so that brings us to our third point. So far we have seen that the sealed are safe because God is restraining his judgment and in the meantime sealing his servants for the day of wrath to escape it. And now point three, God will not send that wrath until the number is complete. He will not send the day of wrath until the number is complete. In other words, the gate won't shut on you if you have a place inside it. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. And for this part, I'm going to rely some on the preaching of my former pastor, David Helm, whose preaching I much admire. He uses the headings, numbers, and names for this part of the passage. And I'm going to borrow those and some of his insights because I think it's helpful for us. So first, a comment on the number, 144,000. This list of 144,000, I take not to be a literal one. This is, a, this is apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. This is the genre we are in. And in this genre, it's not only images, but numbers too. They point beyond themselves to that which they signify. The number is not about the number. And in this case, the numbers signify 
completeness. 12 of 12 times 10 to the third power. 12 tribes of Israel corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham, on whom the covenant promise of God first comes. Others have noted the connection to the 12 apostles, which I think would only serve to reinforce the idea that this is not a literal 144,000. This number signifies completeness, fullness. This is the full people of God. Now let me say something about the names. Even though what's listed here are the names of the sons of Israel, I do not believe that the purview of this list is limited to ethnic Israel, but actually expands beyond that. And there's two broad reasons for that. One is some of the peculiarities of this list, and the second is the parameters of this list. In other words, what happens on either side of this? So, a couple words on some of the peculiarities of this list. Well, for one, there are many lists of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout the Bible, and not one of them looks like this. This ordering is found nowhere else in the Bible. There is something purposefully different about it. For one, the tribe of Dan, who was a son of Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Dan, who is famous for leading others away from the worship of God, is actually omitted in this list altogether. And in his place is Manasseh, who is not a son of Israel, but a son of Joseph, the second to last name listed here. So you actually have a grandson of Israel in this list. Also, the order does not reflect birth order. Naphtali and Gad and Asher, these are sons of Israel's concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah, and yet they are elevated among the brothers born of Jacob's actual wives, Rebekah and Leah. And so what you have is a hodgepodge list of brothers and half-brothers, some of whom were hardly included in the promises of God to the patriarchs, but by association, and missing one to whom the promise belonged by natural birthright. And so now let me move on to my second reason why I don't think this list is, is the literal 144,000 of Israel, and then I'll tie these two together. The second is the parameters of the list. Look at what's happening on either side. You have the servants of God whose foreheads are sealed, and they're not giving any ethnic distinction, either in chapter 7 or in chapter 6. And then, in verses 9 through 17, you have a multitude that no one can number representing every tribe and tongue and nation. And so when you pair that with, the, with these two points, with the idea of completeness and fullness, you realize that what you're looking here, what you're looking at here, is simply another depiction of the fullness of God's people together, Jew and Gentile. And this squares with what we see in the whole Bible. From Israel's earliest days in Sinai as a covenant people of God, there has been provision 
for foreigners to join their ranks. For example, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who hid the Israelite spies, is brought into the fold. And then we get to the New Testament, we see the plain teaching of the apostles that the Gentiles are grafted into the tree of the Jews, made to share together in the promises of God as one people of God. And Romans 9.4 says, speaking of ethnic Israel, it is not the children of the flesh, that is those born of Abraham, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It reminds me of an old song I sang as a five-year-old in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. Those who believe in Jesus, who has come to hold the promises of God to Israel, these are the children of God. And so we see here the complete number of God's people in its countable form here in verses 1 through 8, and in its impossible-to-count form in 9 through 17. You might think of it like a seed that you can hold in your hand here in verse, verses 1 through 8, but then in 9 through 17, it has become a great big oak tree that you could not even climb. And this tree is still growing. This number is still growing. It is not yet complete in the history of the world And so the day of wrath has not yet come. And so we've seen that the sealed are safe, that God is restraining his judgment and marking his people for salvation and is waiting until the number is complete and filled up, and then will the day of wrath come. But until then, and through then, the sealed are safe, they are expanding, and they are numbered. And I think now we are in a place to walk away with some implications and applications from this truth. The first and most obvious from context is to remember that a day of wrath is coming. And you're going to want to be marked. The fact that that day has not yet come is God's patience is God's restraint. Romans calls it a kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. Here it is for you. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so the clock is ticking, and that is God's patience to you. But someday, that patience will have its end, and it will be time for his wrath. I remember one time when I was living in Chicago, I was late for a train heading out to seminary in the suburbs, and I was sprinting down 
the platform, and I could see the door where I needed to get in, and I'm 50 yards from it, and then 40 yards, and then 30, and I can see the ticket taker get into the train, and the doors shut behind her. 20 yards, and then 10 yards, and I am feet from the door, and the train lurches. This giant metal train that cares nothing for my schedule (laughs) moves forward, and it did not wait for me, and it did not stop for me. It had a schedule. Someday, my friends, the train will leave the station. The door will finally close, and it will not open again. But until that time, God is patiently delaying and restraining his wrath for the full number to come in. Won't you be in that number? Won't you be in it? Second thing to take away is to know that God is working in history to fill up the number of his people to completion. And as we wait, we do not have to be dismayed at world history. In fact, we can dare to live with boldness. Last year, I read an incredible missionary autobiography, I think I've mentioned it before, by John Payton, and he ministered to cannibalist tribes in the New Hebrides, and multiple, he had multiple stories at times where he would break up fights between tribes, literally stand between spear and club and arrow and call men to repentance, though they could take his life in an instant. And one time he reflected on a time that God got him out of a tight spot, and he, he says this, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, nor a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all the power in heaven and on earth. This is a man who knows how safe he is in Christ. My friends, the sealed are safe. We do not have to watch the skies for storm clouds or worry about this world. The day of wrath will come upon us as deliverance and nothing else. And so let us not only have peace for that day, but courage for this day day, to live safe, not safely, but actually dangerously for the kingdom because we know that we are safe, to dare to let our heads stand out, to put our necks out for the sake of the gospel, to take the wind of trial and tribulation because we know we will stand. What fears about the world or even our lives might we release? And what risks for heaven might we take if we believe that we are truly safe because we are sealed? 
And so, friends, take courage. And friends who have not yet come to Jesus for the mark, I implore you, come today while there is yet time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It chills us sometimes. And yet you were able to make us to stand. And this is your mercy. And so strengthen us. Cause us to hope and to live with courage in this world. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.